So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. As we do that, I do remind you, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God does indeed stand forever. And this word is a life-giving, precious gift. And I am actually going to start at verse 20 this morning. So last week we read all of Daniel chapter 9. If you were here, I mentioned we would have two sermons. Looked at Daniel's prayer in the first half, the answer here today in the second half. But I'll start at verse 20 and read through the end of the chapter. Let's hear the living and abiding word of God. Daniel speaking, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned last week, we looked at Daniel's wonderful prayer. And today we look at God's answer to Daniel's prayer, the vision that is given to him at the end of chapter 9. Last week, if you were here, I gave you a, a preview, or you could say somewhat of a trailer of this sermon at the end. When I said, this is the prayer that brought Jesus. If you think about it, there is no other way that God could answer this prayer that Daniel prayed other than sending his own son, Jesus Christ. But God's answer to Daniel is not only one of immediate hope, the return from exile, but it's of a much greater hope, an eternal hope, deliverance from sin and evil, everlasting righteousness. And this is a message that Daniel and that God's people Israel in exile needed to hear. Indeed, it's a message that you and I, God's people today, need to hear as well. Why is that? It's because we live in a world of evil and wickedness, of trouble and sorrow and suffering, a world full of sin. And because even though God's people would indeed return from exile, in answer to this prayer, we'll see that God would move the heart of King Cyrus to issue that decree that the Israelites could indeed return to Jerusalem. They could go back to the land of promise. But even though they returned from exile, there was still a huge problem. Yes, they came back from exile, but it was they who came back. They brought their sin with them. They couldn't leave 
their sinful hearts behind. Wherever they went, their sin went with them. So their greatest problem wasn't that they were in exile. It was a real problem, and it caused real suffering, and God was concerned about that, and God acted on their behalf. But it wasn't their only problem, and it wasn't their greatest problem. Their greatest problem was their own sin, that they were sinners. And yes, Daniel led them in this wonderful prayer of repentance. And God would forgive and he would have mercy. But they would sin again and again and again. And we have the same problem. And so they needed and we need a message of hope bigger than simply deliverance from exile. And they got it. They received it in this word. We need that message of hope just as much today. And we have it. And I pray the Lord will encourage you with it today. It's the hope that we have in Jesus. And so this sermon will be about Jesus. It doesn't mean that I'm going to ignore the 70 weeks. I will indeed look at them in the context of Daniel's prayer, which is all leading us to Christ. Now, as I mentioned last week, people who study the Bible for a living have very different understandings of this passage. They will say this is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to understand and to interpret. So there's very different understandings of what the 70 weeks mean, of what this vision means, and how it has been or will be fulfilled. Very different ideas about this prophecy and about the end times. And so just a word of caution for us as we study this passage this morning. We need to avoid two extremes when it comes to this passage and to prophecy and the scriptures in general. The extremes of obsession and the extreme of avoidance. Kind of the opposite end. So I think something is out of balance if you obsess over the apocalyptic literature in the Bible, especially over a short passage like this, piece of prophecy that can be very confusing and that has been interpreted in conflicting ways. And so I would caution you against building your entire approach to God and Christianity around short passages like this that are less clear than the many more clear and plain passages you find in the Bible. So don't make your view of the end times or the last days the most important thing about what you believe. There are important truths in there, but beware of obsession. But also, don't avoid it. This can be my tendency. How do I know what's exactly right? And I tend, well, let's just keep the main thing the main thing, which I think is good and important. But don't avoid it. Pray and study and think about what the scriptures teach in these areas and how they do indeed impact your life and the lives of others. Think about the comfort and the call that we have in these truths. So that's what we want to do this morning with this passage that we have before us because this is indeed an important message for the people of God. Look again at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. He's giving this message to Daniel. Who are Daniel's people? It's the people of God. So even if we don't know exactly what the 70 weeks mean, we do know that this is a message about what God has planned for his people, about his dwelling place with them. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number seven, asks the question, what are the decrees of God? There's that word decree. What does that mean? And the answer says this, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So here in Daniel 9, we have a message about what God has planned for his people. And that message includes this great hope that God will bring his everlasting kingdom through the person and work of his own son, Jesus Christ. Now to show you that from this text, I want to start with a basic overview of the 70 weeks and then explain how this prophecy is all about the person and work of Jesus. So first, the 70 weeks. Now the main focus of this prophecy of 70 weeks is what God will do during it. Not necessarily exactly when he will do it. Again, verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to do six things. To finish the transgression. To put an end to sin. To atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and profit. And to anoint a most holy place or a most, a most, a most holy one. So we'll look at those six things in a moment. But we understand these 70 weeks in light of the clearer passages in the scriptures and even in this own book, the book of Daniel. And we remember, apocalyptic literature often uses numbers as symbols. So 70 weeks, 7 times 10, 70 weeks. The numbers 7 and the numbers 10 are significant in the scriptures. The number 7 in the Old Testament is the number of completion or the number of perfection. God's work of creation is described in seven days. It was very good. And Daniel used the number seven in this way. Remember back in chapter three with the fiery furnace. It was heated seven times more than normal. How did, how did they measure that? Is that a literal number? Was there a, a dial they turned up or was it just seven more loads of wood? How did he know? No. It's symbolic. It's a number of completion. Chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and was out living in the wilderness, it said seven periods of time passed over him while he was living as a beast. It's a number of completion. Jesus used the number seven in this way. Remember when Peter asked him, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus said, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He wasn't saying 490 times. You keep a notebook in your pocket and you tally mark every time. Okay, you're done. 490. No, it's that number of completion. The point was always be ready to forgive. So the number of seven is a number of completion, a number of perfection. And then the number 10 is seen as a number of fullness. Think of the 10 plagues that the Lord sent on Egypt to deliver his people from their slavery. Or think of God giving the fullness of the law and the Ten Commandments. So 70 weeks is referring to a complete, a full period of time. It's long enough, it's just the right amount of time for God to accomplish these six things that he has told us he will do. It's long enough to bring in the perfect kingdom of God. That's what this is pointing us to. 
So these 70 weeks are then divided into three groups, if you heard as I read. There's, there's an initial period of seven weeks, followed by 62 weeks, and then one final week. If you do your math, seven plus 62 plus one, there you have your 70. So seven weeks, we would say, is a relatively restricted period of time. 62 weeks, a relatively extended time, and then that last week is clearly a climactic time. We'll look at that. But those first, first seven weeks are described in verse 25. The scriptures say, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So I would say this is a complete but short period of time. But this message would bring immediate hope to Daniel. Remember, he came to Babylon as a teenager. And now he has been there nearly 70 years. He's in his 80s. He's read the scriptures. He's read the prophet Jeremiah. It has led him to prayer. He's seen God's promise that after 70 years, if God's people would repent, he would return them to the land. So Daniel prayed. He confessed his sin, the sin of his people. He called on our covenant-keeping God to keep his promise. And now here's the answer. The word will go out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. There's immediate hope. And it did in Second Chronicles 36. We read these words. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So there was the decree. You can return from exile. This first period of time, the first seven weeks runs from the time that that decree went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince. And here's one of the first questions. Who is this anointed prince? There are some who say it is the anointed one, the Messiah. I think that comes later in the passage. But if that's how you view it, I can understand that. I could accept that. I do think it's later. I think here... It refers to either Cyrus or to Ezra. And here's why I think that. Because the Lord has already referred to Cyrus as his anointed. In Isaiah 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And then we had just read how the Lord worked in Cyrus's heart to give this decree. The word to return came from Cyrus. So it seems there's a good connection there. Some also say Ezra could be this anointed person. Why? Because Ezra was indeed an anointed priest in the Old Testament. And it was during his time that this word to return and rebuild and restore Jerusalem and the temple was fulfilled. So either one of those seemed to fit as well. But here we have these first seven weeks, a relatively restricted period of time with an immediate answer to prayer, a time when hope returns to the people of God. They return from exile. There is relief from suffering. So it's not only a future hope. That's the greater hope we have in the passage. But there is this realized hope. In a real way, this is relief from suffering from God's people in the here and now. Then we have this period of 62 weeks. Verse 25 says, Then for 62 weeks 
It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. I see this as a relatively extended time. A long, troubled time for Jerusalem. A time when life does go on for God's people. And so, that is good news in some form. That life goes on. They're not wiped out. They continue. They live. But it will be a distressing time. A time of suffering. And we've seen that throughout Daniel. Some say that this time leads all the way up to the occupation by the Romans till the time when Christ was about to be born. And then we have the final week, the complete period of time, a clearly climactic time. See verse 26 again. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The city and the sanctuary, Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. Again, the time runs from the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ to the last day. That's how I understand this last week. It it, it runs from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. So that's a basic, big picture overview of the 70 weeks. But there's one last thing I want you to see before we move on. In verse 24, it begins, in your English Bible, it will say 70 weeks in most translations. But the Hebrew reads 77s. And in the scriptures, that's often seen as weeks of years. So we think of it as 70 weeks of years. And it seems to be a reference to the year of Jubilee. The more you study the Bible, it is fascinating. You will see the connections all throughout the scriptures and how it is one unified book. So, for example, Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8 says this. You you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. So the year of jubilee, seven times seven, every 49 years, that 50th year. Well, 70 weeks of years would equal to 10 Jubilees. Ten, the number of fullness in the scriptures. So think of someone like Daniel. In his youth, he grew up, he was immersed in the law of Moses. He's told to understand that seven sevens would bring to mind the year of Jubilee. What happened during Jubilee? Every man returned to his inherited land. Liberty was proclaimed to the captives. The prisoners were set free. These 70 weeks are an announcement of the ultimate jubilee, the decreed end of human history, when God will bring not just a temporary jubilee, but a permanent jubilee. He will bring in his eternal kingdom. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. These 70 weeks refer to that period of time that encompassed all of human history, from Daniel's time right then until the decreed end to the coming of the perfect kingdom of God. So I believe that the important thing for us to see here is what God says he will do during this time and who ultimately will do it. So we try to understand those 70 weeks, but let's make sure we understand what God's going to do and who he's going to do it through. So let's move on to the person and work of Christ. The answer to Daniel's prayer ultimately was Jesus. 
This is a prophecy about the person and the work of Christ. Verse 26 mentions an anointed one. That second mention. And then it talks about what he will do. And this, I believe, this anointed one, I believe, is the anointed one, the Messiah. And this is what Messiah means. This is what Jesus often refers, he's often referred to as the Messiah in the New Testament. Think about his conversation with the woman at the well on the way to Samaria. And what did she say? I know that Messiah, he was called Christ, the anointed one. When he comes, he will teach us all things. And what did Jesus say to her? I who speak to you am he. I am the anointed one. And she and all her community were filled with great hope because the promise was being realized before their very eyes. Jesus is the anointed one, the one that all the others point to, the one sent by God, the one that all the scriptures are about. This prophecy in Daniel 9 doesn't stand in isolation. It comes in the line of many prophecies that have already been given in the scriptures that Daniel would have been familiar with and that Colin might be asked about this Saturday at Presbytery. We've been praying for Colin. He's going through the ordination process. He has passed all of his written exams. They're grueling. He's met before a a committee of a small group of men who drilled him for about three hours. He passed those exams. He's done a great job. And then this Saturday, he goes before Presbytery. Not, probably not quite this many people, maybe the two middle sections here. And they can ask him whatever they want. So pray for him this Saturday morning, that last step. He's doing a great job. But they might ask him to trace the history of the covenant, of the promises through the scriptures. That's a question that's often asked, maybe before that stage. But I want to just briefly go, so this is for your sake, Colin. Just you and me can have a conversation here right now. I just want to briefly go, go through that. And this won't be a perfect one. There's much more. But just some of the highlights that we see that are leading us to Christ. Because God has given his people these promises at periodic intervals throughout the history of his people. Throughout the scriptures, he is saying to us, I am sending a savior. I'm sending a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one. And it starts right in the beginning. That first hope, the first promise of the gospel. When did it come? It came immediately after the fall of mankind. Immediately after our rebellion, our gracious God responded in mercy. And he gave us great hope in Genesis 3.15. He's announcing that curse upon the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So right away, there's this hope coming. Then in Genesis chapter 12, there's that promise to Abraham. This is indicating the family, the nation that this Messiah, this Savior would come from. It was repeated to Abraham's son Isaac, to Isaac's son Jacob. At the end of Genesis in chapter 49 to Jacob, we're told that the Savior would come through the tribe of Judah. So this, this promise, I like this image that one pastor used, it's like a funnel. It's getting smaller and smaller and it's leading us to one outcome and one outcome alone. A Savior from the house of Abraham from the tribe of Judah. The promise was renewed through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. A prophet like you will arise. And Jesus comes and his public ministry, he is proclaiming the word of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it will be a descendant of David, a king to rule, rule over God's people. So that possibility, the funnel 
keeps getting smaller and smaller. Who could this be? The prophet Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And now we have one that that could be. Micah chapter five, we read portion of it for our past the peace passage, tells us that this one will come out of Bethlehem. So we have all these promises that are pointing us to Jesus. And this prophecy in Daniel chapter nine is another And that long line of promises from God pointing us to Jesus. So don't get lost in all the details and the the possibilities of the 70 weeks. But see the focus. It's pointing us to Jesus. This text is a, a promise about the person of Christ. But it's even more about the work of Christ. What this promised one would do for his people. One pastor said this text is a prophecy of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the central point of which is his death. Another said that this prophecy is all about, or the time of it, is is when Christ's active and passive obedience was completed. His active obedience referring to all that he accomplished in his life. The life and the obedient life of Christ is just as important for our salvation as his sacrificial death. So his active obedience, but then his passive obedience, referring to all that he accomplished in his sacrificial death, what he suffered for us on the cross. That's what is happening in these 70 weeks. So remember, the main thing about this answer to Daniel's prayer is what God has decreed for his people. What he will do. There's no doubt. It's not something he might get to someday. This is his plan. And he always accomplishes his plan. He always does what he says he will do. It's wonderful to have a God, a savior, a father like that. So what did he say? Finish the transgression. Or another translation says, put an end to the rebellion. Put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both the vision and prophet Anoint a most holy place or a most holy one. Beloved, Jesus Christ is the culmination of God's decrees. In Christ alone, every one of these goals will be fulfilled. We won't look at each one of them, but a few of them with me. Verse 26, an anointed one shall be cut off. Being cut off refers to a violent death. It's covenant language, really. It's referring to the cutting of a covenant. And the cutting of a covenant involved the death of a sacrificial victim. That's why we read Isaiah 53 earlier. Jesus, the suffering servant, he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It's a clear reference to Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Verse 27 tells us that he, this this anointed one, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Now, let me just give you a little insight into the the difficulty of this passage. This is not in my notes, so hopefully I won't go very long. Here's the difficulty. Some say this refers to the anointed one, Jesus Christ, and others say it refers to the Antichrist. So you can't get more different than that. It's either Jesus or the very opposite of Jesus. But I see it as pointing us to Christ. He... 
referring to the anointed one, the Messiah, he shall make a strong covenant with many. There's many reasons for that. I'm just going to share briefly. We see that word covenant and we see that word many. Christ uses those very words when he's here on the earth. And that final week, what's happening as he's going to his death? He, he meets with his disciples and he celebrates the Passover with them. And as he does so, he institutes the Lord's Supper. And you should be familiar with these words. I say them every week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. They're from the scriptures. I'm tying together what Jesus says in Luke and what he says in Matthew. So if you're looking for that exact quote, that's where I take it from, if you're ever wondering. But in Matthew, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is fulfilling this promise. He's making a strong covenant with many. Isaiah 53 uses that same word. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Mark chapter 10, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What hope we have in this Messiah. And then verse 27, it says that this one, this anointed one, shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. What did Jesus do when he died? This is exactly what he did with his death. Jesus did indeed put an end to all Old Testament sacrifices. He caused them to cease. Why? What happened at his death? Matthew tells us that when he breathed his last, at that very moment, the, the curtain in the temple tore in two from top to bottom. Why? Because that barrier between God and man was removed. There was no longer the need for a human priest, a mediator of someone outside ourselves, and a human person alone to bring us to God. Through Jesus now, truly God, truly man, we have direct access to the most holy God. And since Jesus was the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, these animal sacrifices are no longer needed. They were just a picture pointing us to Christ. And now the true Lamb of God is on scene. We saw that when we studied through the Gospel of John. These animal sacrifices no longer needed. But now, beloved, they're an abomination. Because they're saying you're putting your trust in something other than the true Messiah who has come. Hebrews tells us that where there is forgiveness of sins... There's no longer any offering for sin. The offering has been made. So it's Jesus' death on the cross which would bring about what God decreed and what verse 24 predicted for that 70th week to finish transgression and to atone for iniquity. Beloved, you can have all your sin forgiven. You can have all your sin forgiven. Yes, we acknowledge that our suffering is real and painful. And our gracious God loves us enough that he cares about the pains of our hearts, whatever they may be, whether they're from outside of us, whether they're from inside of us. They are painful and he's doing something about that to rescue us from that as well, just as he delivered his people from exile. That's true. And it's also true that our greatest problem is not suffering from without, but it's the sin from within. Who can deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you can have all your sin forgiven. All of it. Not by anything you do or can do. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus can take away all your guilt and all your shame. And there may, you may know that. You read it in the scriptures. But in the sinful fallen world, there's a sense in which some of that guilt and shame may stay with you till the day you die or till Jesus returns, but it won't stay with you forever. But only Jesus can take it away. Only Jesus can make all things new. Only Jesus was the man of sorrows who came to bear our grief and carry our sorrows. Only Jesus can bring us near to God. And so if you want to have all your sins forgiven, admit that you are a sinner. We are all needy. Every one of us. This is what we have in common with every person in this world. You might think about the person you despise most in this world. The things that they stand for. The things that they do. And beloved, you are no, in your own sinful heart, you are no nearer to God than they are. You are just as in much need of a savior as every single person. We are all needy. Admit you are a sinner. And then what? You plead the mercies of God. You ask for forgiveness. And he grants that request. In mercy, he will forgive you and make you new. And then you worship this anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus. This is the hope you need. This is the answer to Daniel's prayer. This is the one every one of you can turn to today and you can trust him and you will not be put to shame. But there's more good news. It's wonderful to be forgiven of our sin. To know that we can be restored to a right relationship with God. To know God. How wonderful is it, beloved, to have Jesus as your friend. How could we live without him? It's wonderful to know God as your father and enjoy that fellowship. But we need more than just the forgiveness of that sin. We need someone who can, when he brings us into the restored kingdom, can leave our sin behind so that we don't bring it with us. And he can remove all that wickedness and all that evil from our lives. And that's exactly what we have. He will put an end to sin. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. Amen. This is the great hope we have. Now, some of you probably wish I would have talked about the Antichrist a lot. I'm, I'm going to at least, there I said it, okay? So it's, it's in the sermon. <laughs> The prophecy, there probably should be more sermons on this passage, but the prophecy does speak of these decreed desolations and of the desolator. So there is hope and there's a great hope to come, but there's also suffering along the way. There's wickedness, there's evil in the world. And some see this, certainly believers were persecuted all throughout their history, certainly under the Roman occupation. Some see this under Emperor Titus, especially kind of as a prefigure of the Antichrist to come. And the Apostle John tells us that many Antichrists have come. So I don't think the point is for us to identify exactly who this is, but, but to know the Antichrist has come and, and, and may come, and, and there will continue to be persecution. But one thing that this passage makes clear that there is, 
And there will be, until Jesus returns, there will be persecution for God's people. And there will be an ongoing battle with evil and wickedness and sin. And in the 20th 20th century alone, more than 45 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ were martyred for their faith. They were put to death. That is, that's wicked. And that is evil. And the one behind that is not ultimately humans. The one behind that is ultimately the great hater, the enemy of God's people who is behind that. It's the father of lies. He's been a murderer from the beginning. But his decreed end is coming. His decreed end is coming. And Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's a hard word, but it's a hopeful promise. Jesus also said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he knows the name, every single name, of every one of his sheep who shed their blood for their faith. He knows every tear they've cried, every tear you have cried because of your suffering. He, he, the Bible says he, he holds them in his bottle and he'll wipe them all away. This is our Savior who is coming So there is this wickedness and this evil and this sin in the world. And we need not only to be forgiven of our sin, of of the removal of evil and wickedness, we need to be completely freed from it. And that's what this passage tells us will happen. Not only free from the guilt and power of sin, we remind you every week, but from its very presence. And beloved, only Jesus can do that. And beloved, Jesus will do that. He will put an end to sin and he will bring in everlasting righteousness. He will free us from the very presence of sin. Everyone struggles with the problem of evil and suffering. Every religion that is in the world, every person wonders at times, how do we reconcile evil and suffering in the world? Here's the answer, the decreed end. God alone has the answer. God alone can do something about it. Jesus will put an end to sin and he will bring in this everlasting righteousness. Only Jesus can do that. And only Jesus will do that. God's decreed end will come. His will will be done. Amen? So this is a sermon about Jesus. If I ever stop preaching Jesus, you need to talk to me and straighten me out. And if you can't, then you need to get rid of me. That's the reality. Christ must always be preached from this pulpit. It's a sermon about Jesus. Why? It's not because God has given me a love for Jesus. That's partly it. But it's because that's what this book is about. And this prophecy is about Jesus. Because this is the prayer that brought Jesus. So where is Jesus now and what is he doing? It's a question we asked in Sunday school recently. It's so encouraging to know, beloved. He's alive. He's risen. He's ascended at the right hand of God. And right now, he is interceding for you. He knows you by name. And he's praying for you. Everything in your heart that makes you mourn or weep, every sin that you wish wasn't a part of your life, he knows and he prays along with you. And he weeps along with you. 
He prays for you and he's present with you by his spirit right now. Yes, to comfort you. Yes, to guide you. Yes, to strengthen you. Also to help you in your battle against sin. So yes, he's risen and he's ascended and he's interceding for us and he's present with us by his spirit. And what else? He is coming. I thought of it this way this week. If you've ever ever run a track event, Jesus is in the starter's block and he's ready. He's ready to come at the track meet. The the gun goes off and boom, they're off. Jesus is in the starter's block. And beloved, the trumpet is going to sound and our savior is going to come. And the great hater of God's people is in the Lord's crosshairs with the date of his demise clearly marked on God's calendar. The clock's set. We're headed there. God's decreed end will come. One destined day has already come. When Jesus gave his life for us on the cross, the next one, the final one, is on the horizon. We can see it. And beloved, we're a day closer today. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. What a great day that's going to be. I can't wait to be there with you all. I can't wait. Amen. Let's pray.